Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to The Other Hand a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Uh, last Friday, we had Irish GDP data released, which was interesting in its own right. Um, we're going to talk about what's happening in the United States with the Biden fiscal package uh, that's making its way through the process at the moment. And we're also going to look at the pretty dramatic economic forecasts released by the OECD today, which show a really, really incredible uplift from their last forecast as recently as December. Irish GDP um, is always interesting. And as we discussed in our last podcast, it always needs to be seasonally adjusted for what's really going on in the Irish economy. But I noticed over the weekend the tarnished tweeting that Irish GDP expanded by 3.4% last year, which of course is the case. Uh, but what he didn't mention was what else was going on beneath those data. Uh, modified domestic demand, which strips out the distortionary impact of aircraft leasing, intellectual property assets, and as we explained in our last podcast, it tries to remove um, the issues around globalization as they affect the Irish economy. But modified domestic demand declined by 5.4%. Um, consumer spending was down by 9%, with spending on physical goods down by 5.1%, and spending on services down by 11.8%. That consumer expenditure performance reflects very accurately 
what was open and what wasn't open in the Irish economy last year, you know, with many personal services, um, restaurants, etc., shut down. So that's been reflected in that very, very sharp decline in services expenditure. I suppose the other interesting aspect of the release last Friday was what it tells us about what was happening at a sectoral level last year. None of this should come as a surprise. Um, output from building and construction fell by 9.1%. Uh, distribution, transport, hotels, restaurants down by a massive 16.7%. And I suppose most startlingly of all, output from arts, entertainment and other services was down by 54.4%. Um, so you can see very clearly sectors of the economy that were decimated in the last 12 months because of the COVID restrictions. And that has been reflected in labour market statistics, in exchequer returns and so on. And then on the other hand, we have the multinational sector output was up by 18.2%, whereas for the non-multinational sector of the economy, output was down by 9.5%. So it really is a story of a dual economy. Um, you can see some sectors of the economy doing really well, others that are pretty obvious because they're the ones that are subject to the restrictions, you know, experiencing very, very serious difficulties. Um, but I suppose my overall message would be that don't be fooled by the headlines. And the headlines show us that Ireland was the only country in the European Union to see an expansion in GDP last year. But you need to delve beneath the statistics to really see what's going on. And what that shows us is that the domestic part of the economy um, under significant pressure. Uh, but in, interesting, a very interesting picture. And I think it, it feeds very well into what's going on in the United States with the Biden package at the moment. So, Chris, I'll hand back to you if you want to talk about that. Yeah, thanks, Jim. I'll introduce some thoughts onto the Biden package. And as always, feel free to, to jump in if I say something completely stupid or you think needs elaborating on. It, the headline number is enormous. It's 1.9 trillion. So give or take, it's about 10% of the US economy. You talked about Irish GDP there. Um, this is about 10% of, of US GDP. So it's a, it's a big deal. Um, and it's not receiving nearly enough attention on this side of the Atlantic. It's receiving some in places like the FT and um, the back pages of the business pages in, in other publications. But I think it should be front page news of, of all of our media because it, at a headline level, I think many people will have heard about the, the New Deal in the 1930s um, or 1930s, 1940s, Rooseveltian politics in, and economics in the States that really introduced the idea of government intervention in the economy back then to try and sort out the Great Depression. I call this a new New Deal. I, 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 th I think it potentially, particularly if it's followed up, is going to be that big a deal. It's, it's the most unprecedented intervention, fiscal intervention at least, in the US economy since World War II, as far as I can see, particularly if, it, again, if it's followed up with the plans that we know Biden has. Um, you mentioned the OECD which um, every year, twice a year, produces a whole bunch of economic forecasts that are always interesting. And uh, it did, as it usually did at the end of last year, produce some, some outlooks for the next couple of years. Um, and it's updated them this morning. 
and the, I, I ha, it's been a long time since I've seen an update like this. First of all, so soon after the last one and so big, you mentioned that some of the changes are jaw-dropping and they really are. The United States, as a result of that Biden package, um, gets, well, quite frankly, it gets a Chinese economic growth rate, or at least the sort of numbers that we've seen. The um, I think that they've basically doubled their expectation for US GDP growth this year. This is not how economic forecasters normally operate. As you know, Jim, the, the way in which economic forecasts change over time is that they're sort of salami sliced. You know, you get little additions or little subtractions through time. You don't get these huge, huge wholesale changes. At the world economy level, the OECD was saying that they thought 21 was going to grow by about 4.2%. Now, they produced that forecast, which is quite goey, all things considered. It's not great in, in a world economic context, but it's better than it could have been. And they produced that forecast after the vaccines had been announced in the autumn. Um, and now, just a short while later, they've upgraded that 4.2 to 5.6% for this year. I mean, again, that, that's a huge change. And the US is now at 6.5%. Um, the best spillovers for, for that US growth rate, of course, come to, this is economic geography. Canada and Mexico benefit enormously from that. But looping back to your comments about the Irish economy and the way in which it's very much a tale of two economies, if you like, um, the, the expansion in the world economy and particularly the source of it, the, the, the US, is going to be presumably good for, the, for that bit of the Irish economy that continued to do well last year, the international globalized sector. And I'll ask you whether or not you think that's right in a moment, Jim. Um, just, to, just to give you a flavour for why the OECD has upped its forecast for the states and therefore the world, it thinks this adds at least one percentage point to world GDP growth, this Biden package. It's all about cash. And this is the thing to try and understand is that it's about putting cash in the hands of consumers um, and local government, actually. For the first time ever, although it's temporary, we, um, I suppose progressives will hope that it's permanent, is made permanent, there's a child allowance. Now, in Ireland and Britain, of course, we're used to family allowances and children's allowances, but the US gets one. Unemployment insurance is extended for another six months. So that's great for those that have been thrown out of work by the pandemic. Everybody, virtually everybody in the States is going to get another check. This is something sadly lacking from our own coronavirus fiscal response. There's a $1,400 check going to virtually everybody. There's lots of healthcare assistance. There's $170 billion for schools. Um, the cities, um, states and cities that are in trouble are going to get $350 billion. And that's badly needed. People in rental difficulties are going to get $27 billion and and so it goes on this the, these are cash transfers which which research um shows has the, okay, Chris, the biggest economic uh, a, 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 a few things strike me about this um the you you went through some of the detail of the biden package it is a really really significant um injection of fiscal spending power into the economy but a lot of this stuff is once off in nature OK, so in 2022, a lot of this stuff will not be recurring. And is that a concern or, you know, is, is, is there a danger that the U.S. economy slips back in again? So that, that's, that's one of the issues um, that I think is worth exploring. 
because um, you know there's no way Biden can continue to inject this sort of fiscal stimulus on an indefinite basis. Yeah, and I suppose that goes back to um, when we did economics in school, Jim, um, and a Keynesian uh, would say this is all about priming the pump. And once you get it going, there are all sorts of multiplier effects and all those bits of jargon that means that the economy, the economic recovery um, develops uh, cyclical momentum in and of its own. The hope is that because of all of this spending, this spending will beget spending, if you like. It'll induce companies to start investing. Um, things will start opening up by way of factories, offices and in particular shops. Um, and that therefore there will be longer lasting effects. The initial effect, of course, will probably be the biggest. I agree that some of it will wear off, but I don't think all of it will wear off, given what we know about the dynamism of the US economy. But another reason why I think it won't wear off is, is to do with those comments I made earlier on about what's planned for the future. Biden wants to follow this up with an infrastructure bill later this year. Now, of course, he may or may not get it through, but um, in, he got this one through and nobody thought, very few people a couple of months ago thought that this was coming. This infrastructure bill, which, essentially, which is essential for the US economy, if you've driven on any of its highways recently, you'll know that uh, there are an awful lot of roads, bridges, and many other aspects of US infrastructure that badly need replacing. A lot of it dates back to the 1950s and, and another president, Eisenhower, actually. That's a different story. So there are big plans for the US. And, and the numbers that we've already spoken about are big enough. There's more to come. It stands in such contrast to what's happening on this side of the pond, both in the UK and the Eurozone. Uh, yeah, Chris, in, in relation to the Eurozone and the UK, um, looking at the OECD forecast, there's a few things that strike me as being um, unusual that I really find hard to believe. OK, I can see uh, the US growth profile over the next couple of years looking very good. Uh, but the Eurozone economy is projected to grow by 3.9% this year, you know, which is not spectacular given the base from which it's coming, but still a decent enough level of growth. But then you look at the forecast for 2022, uh, the Eurozone expected to grow by 3.8%. That's nearly 2% above what I would regard as the potential growth rate of the Eurozone economy. And within that, you know, Germany expected to grow by 3% this year, 3.7% next year. Uh, I find that very, very difficult to believe, I have to say. Um, and if those sorts of forecasts were to come to fruition, um, I would really be wondering about how the European Central Bank would react to that sort of growth profile over two-year period. Yeah, I, sh I would share your scepticism about the ability of the Eurozone economy to deliver those kinds of growth rates. There must be some kind of policy stimulus assumptions built into them, I would have thought. We know that um, the Eurozone is doing 750 billion euros uh, at some point. Uh, we haven't seen much of it so far. Uh, it is going to be dispersed. I imagine the Italians and others have, have got their eyes on that. Um, and it must be assumed, again, that the, the European Central Bank plays ball and keeps interest rates, keeps, monetary, keeps the monetary pedal to the floor and that, that there isn't any response. Um, all that said, I would be much more confident in the ability of the US economy to deliver the kind of numbers the OECD are penciling in than I would for the Eurozone. Um, the Eurozone perennially disappoints, as you know, Jim. Yeah. 
In, in, in the context of what we discussed uh, last week, the UK budget last week, um, okay, the, as I saw it, certainly the whole focus of that budget was very much short-term stimulus and then longer-term fiscal consolidation. Um, and not surprisingly, the OECD is looking at a growth rate of 5.1% in the UK this year. Uh, but I'm a little bit surprised that they're talking about growth of 4.7% next year. And given the sort of fiscal plans that Rishi Shunak announced last week, that seems a bit fanciful to me as well. I mean, basically, is the OECD concluding here that Shunak is not going to deliver the fiscal tightening that he outlined in the budget last week? And unfortunately, the OECD hasn't produced a forecast for 2023. So I'd be kind of interested in seeing what sort of profile they would expect for the UK economy a little bit further down the road. And uh, so that, 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 that's kind of interesting. But Yeah, just on Sunak, one of the many contrasts that one can make between US fiscal policy and UK fiscal policy, but also European, but let's look at the UK-US contrast for a second, is that whether or not you think it's a good idea or a bad idea about what Biden is doing, there's a, there's, a, there's a coherence, there's a strategic imperative, a strategic overlay to what he's doing. It clearly has several aspects. There's the social progressive a aspect to it in that he's doing all sorts of cash transfers to people who need the money. Um, and we know that there are some amazing statistics out there about how, what that might do for child poverty, for example. Um, I think you quoted one to me recently that it could uh, lift 50% of kids out of poverty if this money finds its way into the right hand. So there's all sorts of socially progressive aspects to this. There's the purely macroeconomic aspect to this. And we've been talking about that in the context of GDP forecasts exploding, going through the roof for the U.S., and associated economies. That's the second leg of the stool. But the third leg of the stool is purely political. So we've got social, economic, and political. And the politics of Biden's package are really that he's got 18 months to make a difference um, before the next midterm elections, which of course there is a risk that the, the um, Republicans gain back control and, he's not, and he becomes a lame duck president for the second half of his presidency. So he's going for it and he's trying First of all, to, to, to avail of the opportunity to do what he can while he can, because he can get these measures through. And secondly, it's, and relatedly, it's an opportunity to not lose the Senate or the House um, into, in 18 months' time, um, because hopefully this will put enough cash into otherwise Trump-style voters that will consider voting for Democrats next time around. So it's an effort to see off Trump, Trumpism. Yeah, so it's got I was some strategic fascinated with the yeah. polls in the States showing that two thirds of Republican voters are in favor of the Biden package, despite the fact that um, most Republicans in the houses have voted, I think all have voted against it. So that, that tells us something and certainly does set Biden up very nicely in 18 months time um, to you know, do reasonably well in the midterm elections. Uh, another thing that struck me as really interesting was the fact that Bernie Saunders actually lauded Biden's package last Saturday night. And obviously Saunders um, would regard him well, certainly during the electioneering was a bitter enemy of Biden and said some awful things about him. But um, this, when you see somebody like Saunders standing up lauding it, you realise that Biden very definitely has moved out to the more progressive wing of the party. 
because I would have thought he was going to come in as very much a centrist. Um, but I, but I, but I guess that the left of the Democratic Party is exerting more and more influence on policy. Yeah, I think that's very astute of you, Jim, to, to, to describe it in those terms, because Biden's genius over a very long career has always to be position himself in the center of the Democratic Party. And it's the Democratic Party that's moved left. And so Biden being in the middle of it has naturally and organically moved left as well. I don't think it's anything in particular about Biden, but he's always had this very clever strategic positioning saying that I'm always going to be a centrist and a centrist within my party. And as the party has moved towards the Bernie wing a little, I don't think it's moved a lot, nothing compared to how Ireland is likely to move when um, you know who get in government next time. Um, we can compare leftward moves in that way. But Biden's strategic genius has been to always position himself in the center of, of the party, and it has led to him gaining the presidency now. All that strategic vision, whether you love it or whether you loathe it, you've got to accept that it's there, stands in stark contrast to what Sunak, and possibly Europe as well, but Sunak certainly, there isn't any strategic vision whatsoever. His budget last week was just a collection of sound bites and a most unrealistic promise. Um, the unrealistic promise was, as you said, was that I'm going to spend now and tax later. In fact, I'm going to tax later and slash spending later. And if you look at the electoral timetable in the UK, the, the period over which Sunak has promised to be raising taxes and slashing government spending is the run up to the next general election. Now, I'm not sure about you, Jim, but I find that distinctly implausible. So I don't think that his his budget had any strategic vision. I think it had lots of holes. There were there, there was as much missing as as there was in it. The, the, um, the UK is supposed to have a green agenda. There was nothing in the budget about that. There was precious little about the levelling up agenda, about all the red wall constituencies. There was nothing for local governments. Um, unlike the Biden package, which gave a lot of money to state and local governments, um, local government here is in a lot of trouble. Um, some regional authorities are, are actually going bankrupt as we speak. And perhaps most importantly of all, given to all of that stuff we were talking about with respect to the OECD and upgrading growth forecasts, there was nothing in the UK budget about growth, about trying to raise the UK's long run rate of economic growth. In fact, what Sunak said was that there's permanent economic scarring from the pandemic. GDP will be 3% lower than it otherwise would be in, in a couple of years time. And there's nothing I can do about it. That's the contrast. Chris, with a few, not too long ago, I heard you, and we've had many discussions on this over the last number of months. Uh, you were basically writing Boris Johnson off um, as, how will I put, do, put this judiciously, as a, a pretty poor prime minister that would go down in history for all the wrong reasons. I get the sense. I think I put it more yeah, strongly indeed. than that. I, go on. I get the sense that the fortunes of Johnson have changed dramatically over the last couple of months. And um, he really does seem to have stolen the march on Kurt Stammer at this stage, which is quite extraordinary given what was happening in the run up to Christmas. And um, the, bu the budget last week, I, I presume, will play into that narrative for Johnson. He's back. And what do you think the implications of that are um, coming up towards the next election, particularly? 
Well, very few people in the media shared my perspective on the budget. It was it was generally welcomed, and the opinion polls here in the UK suggest that the people at large think that it was a good budget. Um, because if all the pain is deferred and all the gain is today, um, those of us that are into instant gratification would think that it's uh, a good budget. So I suspect even Johnson would have liked it in those terms as well. But I don't think the budget got that much attention, actually. I think like everywhere, this is a one issue country. Vaccine. And that issue is COVID-19 and the vaccine. And um, the fact is that uh, whether by luck or by judgment or a bit of both, the vaccine program has gone remarkably well. As you know, the UK and Europe's experience of A, getting hold of the vaccine and B, delivering it has been quite different. Um, and we can talk about that if you want. But so far, and you must, we must always, when we talk about the future of this dreaded virus, uh, caveat it with that you know, we've all said things that have turned out to be wrong. And just because something is happening today doesn't mean that it could reverse tomorrow. We've seen how things go horribly wrong all too often. But that said, just to give you three numbers, Jim, for why Johnson is so popular. If you look at the way coronavirus cases have been moving here, the latest seven-day average is down 35% just on the previous week. Um, and that is a number itself that has been falling. So cases down 35% just in the most recent week and they've been falling for weeks. Um, hospital admissions, the seven-day average is down 47% in the last week. And deaths, the seven-day average is down 41%. So inevitably, people are saying, not only can Johnson meet his timetable for releasing the UK economy completely by May the 21st, there's hints, whispers in the corner that these numbers are now so good that the timetable might be accelerated. As I said, it could go horribly wrong. Schools only went back yesterday, so that will lead inevitably to a rise in cases. But the thing to look at is, is are those hospital admission, admissions and fatalities. That's where the vaccine effect is being seen the most, in that the people that have been vaccinated typically mostly are not being hospitalized, even if they get coronavirus and most of them aren't. And that's what is boosting Johnson's popularity to a lead of 13% in the opinion polls. Yeah, when you look at the behaviour of Johnson in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, the unilateral decision to try and push the grace period out by six months to the end of or the beginning of October, um, and you saw an incredibly vitriolic response from the European Union. Is this what a regenerated Boris Johnson is going to look like over the coming months? Is he going to start playing really hard and fast with uh, the withdrawal agreement with the Northern Ireland Protocol? Because I certainly get the sense over there that the, the Brexiteers are obviously very happy with what's happening because uh, the way Britain has handled the vaccine relative to the European Union makes the Brexit, it, it definitely gives a lot of solace to the Brexiteers. And I also find that those who are, a lot of those who are anti-Brexit um, are actually starting to question themselves at this stage. You know, is there a benefit to be gained from being out of the European Union? And in relation to the vaccine rollout, it certainly strikes me that there is. So that that regeneration and rebirth of Boris's mojo certainly could have very significant implications for the relationship between European Union and Britain, and also between 
Ireland and Britain, obviously of much more importance to us. So it's 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 interesting the way the vaccine has turned the whole thing around for him. It's it's not looking good, and um, if Johnson sees a political advantage, he'll do it, no matter what it is, no matter even if it is illegal, no matter if it breaks an international treaty. Whether he'll do it if it threatens the Northern Ireland peace process, I guess I have hope that he will not. Um, I think that the fact that people like Cummings have gone and that he's surrounded himself now actually with ex-spooks, which is an interesting topic of conversation in itself, I think that ultimately even he will step back from doing something that will threaten a return to the bad old days. But that's a hope rather than a a, a full-on expectation, Jim. I agree that it's not looking good, particularly with the bruiser, the street fighter, the guy that really enjoys punching Europe in the face at every opportunity. Um, Lord Frost is is now in charge of these negotiations. So I, I think it's not looking good. But of course, part of all of this stuff in the UK getting better, these virus numbers, it doesn't just have an impact on Boris Johnson's opinion poll ratings, although we can see the effect there. It's affecting everything, um, including the currency. Uh, You'll have noticed, Jim, that sterling has been going steadily up against the euro. As far as I can tell, this is also a vaccine effect. Would you agree? Uh, I I would totally agree. For the last number of years at various presentations I've done, you perennially get asked the question about what sterling is going to do. And over the last three years, um, I would have called sterling as a Brexit call, you know, when sentiment towards a hard Brexit hardens, sterling suffers. And if you get, when you are moving more in the direction of uh, a softer form of Brexit, sterling benefited from that. So I guess the the Brexit deal that was done, you know, avoiding the hard Brexit um, has definitely given momentum to sterling as I think it should do. Uh, But then obviously the vaccine is now feeding into that. And, you know, with Boris Johnson's fortunes improving with the vaccine being rolled out and having the incredibly impressive impact on the health statistics that you outlined there. That's all good for the currency. And you look at the other side then of the equation, the euro side, uh, the European Union, in my view, has made a pretty much a dog's dinner out of the whole vaccine program. And as massive uncertainty, we get headlines um, in the Irish newspapers this morning about the number of vaccines over the next three months being half what was expected and so on. So definitely the UK vaccine situation, the UK economic situation looks much more compelling than Europe at the moment. And I guess that's what's feeding into sterling. And in normal times, I would say this weakness of sterling is really good news for um, Irish exporters to the UK. um, And that is the case. But in the current circumstances, Irish exporters are actually finding it very difficult to do business with the United Kingdom because of the problems that Brexit is causing. So, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. But uh, from an Irish perspective, it is certainly good to see that sort of free fall sterling that we saw for a while um, actually being reversed. So strong sterling is good for the Irish economy. I, ha- I have to say... Um, Looking at everything that's happening at the moment, um, the removal of Trump from office has definitely improved my worldview, okay? Because I think he was such a malign influence that getting him off the stage was good. 
what Biden is doing in terms of his social program, um, I think has to be seen as good because the one thing that I've noticed, my visit to states very regularly, at least I did up until March of last year, the, the inequality, uh, the poverty that hits you, that the infrastructure you mentioned, the motorways, the bridges, etc. It looked like a society and an economy in serious trouble. So it does give hope that Biden will actually address that. So that fills me with more optimism about the future. You look at the OECD forecast today, uh, very upbeat for the next couple of years. That fills me with a greater sense of optimism. And of course, we see around the world, um, economies are opening up. There is a return to some semblance of normality. Uh, I was talking to my brother in San Francisco last night. You know, things are opening up there. Life is starting to look a little bit more normal. All of that stuff uh, does fill me with optimism and enthusiasm. But then when I focus back on what's happening here, there is no sense here at the moment that we're on the brink of reopening again. And in fact, most of the rhetoric we're getting from the powers that be would suggest that we're going to be subject to serious restrictions for the foreseeable future. Uh, the vaccine rollout program um, is pretty awful, in my view. If you look at the stats, they're not great. Um, they will argue, of course, that it's a supply issue. So I'm seeing very, I'm really conflicted at the moment. I have this pretty optimistic worldview, but when I look at the domestic situation, it doesn't fill me with joy or enthusiasm. And in fact, anything but. And time is against us, Jim, but there's so many other things that we could talk about. We've talked about one aspect of the financial market consequences of this, of sterling. And we've talked in our previous podcasts about what this has meant for the bond market and therefore the equity markets. And these are going to be subjects that we're going to be retur returning to, I suspect, very quickly. But there's the Irish economic dimension, which we began with when you talked about Irish GDP and the two economies. The fact that we do have a multinational sector, we do have a sector very exposed to the global economy, I think means that we are in better a shape than some other Eurozone economies that, that I could mention, that we will get something of this tailwind coming from the United States. On the sterling UK thing, because of what I said about the lack of strategic coherence to the UK's economic, political and social policy, contrasting with what's going on in the States, I don't think sterling strength is likely to last. It'll last for a while. But I do think that this UK renaissance um, as exemplified by the rise in the currency, will fizzle out because they've got no strategically coherent economic policies. And I do think that they are going to get into trouble, at least relatively. But Chris, you could say the same about the Eurozone in fairness. And I probably would, Jim. But that requires um, some more of the 700, you know, the 750 billion that we talked about. They've, they've got to do more. And you and I, going back a long time, um, were, I think, would have been considered by many people to have been mildly Eurosceptic. We were never fans together, either of us, of the, of the Euro in the first place. And prior to Brexit, which we both hated, me in particular, um, I, I don't think either of us would have been seen as in, enthusiasts for um, what you, the, the Euro pro, European project. Yes, in principle, it's a wonderful thing. But the way in which they go about their economic policies leave, leave an awful lot to be desired. And again, I suspect that's a subject to which we will return. Um, but that's really all that we've got time for today. We probably left a lot on the table, Jim, but that's great. We'll be coming back to it very soon. Thanks very much, buddy.
You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.